Thanks, team. Hey, uh, this morning we're in this book of, of Esther. So if you have your Bible out, I would invite you to open that up to Esther chapter 5. If you're online and you want to use that, that Bible app that I believe is over here in the window, if it's over there, it was horrible. But it's somewhere in there, there's a Bible app. Uh, and if you're here in person, if you need a Bible, we have some on the back the tables back there right by those offering boxes uh, and invite you to grab one of those. If you don't have a Bible at home, you're very welcome to take one of these with you. It, it's our gift to make sure that you have something at home to be able to study and to, to go along there. We are in this series. We're kind of nearing the end of this series this week and next week where we're going to finish up uh, the book of Esther and what we've been understanding uh, how to live in the kingdom of God in our ordinary lives, especially in times when it seems like God is missing from the pages of our life. We've said this before, but the book of Esther is the only book of the scriptures that does not have mentioned the name of God. The name of God, the God's word and God's speaking is not happening at all in the book of Esther. And so it leads us to understand how do we live our life when God seems to be silent, when, when he seems to be not on the pages of our life. What does it look like to follow after him? And so if you've missed one of these messages as we've gone through the book of Esther, I encourage you to go. Go online to our online campus and, and find those, those services and listen back to those, uh, those sermons. There's a lot in those messages, a lot to try and, and go with it, much that we've learned and much that we've discovered over these weeks about life in the kingdom of God and how we can remain faithful to him in the way. Now again, we're going to be in Esther chapters 5, 6, and 7. I don't have time to recap all of it, the first four chapters of where we were, but suffice it to say, last time when we met Esther, last time when we left her last, it was Esther chapter 4, Mordecai had just told her about Haman's evil plan to uh, annihilate all the Jewish people. He had just told her that all this plan was, in, was enacted and that she was to go to come to the king and to uh, seek mercy from the king. And she had told him, now, I don't know if that's a good idea, because she knew that it was risking her own life, and so she called for a fast and for prayer. If you remember, at the end of chapter 4, she tells Mordecai, says, okay, Mordecai, everybody fast for three days, and, uh, and we'll see what happens. Mordecai, at the end of chapter 4, tells her one of the famous lines of this whole book, and he says, you know, maybe, Esther, you've been placed in this place, or you've been positioned in this place for such a time as this. For such a time as this, and she replies, well, then let's fast, let's pray. And she decides to go to see the king, and she responds with an equally famous quote. She says, if I perish, I perish. But before she goes, everybody commits to pray and fast. And then chapter 4 ends. And here we are, chapter 5, right as she's about to enter into the king's palace, right before she comes into his, uh, into his throne room to ask for mercy. And so we pick up this text. Now, this is a long text. We're going to read all of it this morning. All of Esther chapter 5, 6, and chapter 7. So get comfortable. Kind of settle in, right? It's a long thing to read. But more than just comfortable, more than settle in, I want to invite you to enter into the story. Enter into the narrative. Feel the weight of it. Feel what's going on. See it in your mind's eye. See how the, what's going on. Hopefully you've read the story already in our study that you, this is not new to you. But as I read it this morning, I invite you to not just hear the words, but enter yourself into the story, into the narrative. See what's going on. Feel what's going on in the story with the various people. And then as we have, I'll have some comments after the, after the reading. 
Now, last couple of weeks, I would stop along the way, and I'd give some, point out some things. We got a lot to read today, so I'm not going to stop along the way. We're just going to keep on going, and at the end of the reading, we'll, we'll see what we can learn and discover together about who God is and about how we live faithfully to God's ways in our ordinary life. Fair enough? All right, Esther chapter 5. If you have your Bible, you can follow along. It'll also be on the screens. But Esther chapter 5, and it goes like this. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out, her, held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to the banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition to fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Haman went out that day in, in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him, and how he had elevated him above, above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she's invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all of his friends said to him, Have a pole set up reaching to the height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. The suggestion delighted Haman and he had the pole set up. That night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the chronicles of the reign, of the record of his reign to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Well, bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man who the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who was there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have him Bring a royal robe the king has worn and the horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on his head. 
Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to the one of the king's most noble princes. Let the robe, let the let them robe the man, the king delights to honor, and lead him and the horse throughout the city gate, city streets, proclaiming before him, "This is what has been done for the man the king delights to honor." Well, go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. And while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And there they were, as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. The queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. Spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, but because no such distress would justify disturbing the king, King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. And Esther said, An adversary and an enemy is this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. Then the king said, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. Fascinating story. Just fascinating. And the question that I want us to wrestle with, which is what we've been wrestling with over these last few weeks, is that how does this story teach us about God? What does the story teach us about who God is, the nature of God, and how it is that we are called to live in step with God in our ordinary lives? What does the story, what does the narrative teach us about the nature of God and how we are to live according to His nature in our very lives, in our lives, especially when God seems silent and distant? Well, as we have in the last few weeks, I've got some things for us to consider from the narrative and then an assignment to give us this week. Some things to consider, things we see about the nature of God and then something for us to do. How do we live in step with that? 
three things this morning about what we learned from the story about the nature of God. And the first thing for us to know is that God is a God of divine reversals. God is a God of divine reversals. What you see in the narrative, starting in verse in chapter 5, going through chapter 7, is a complete reversal, 180 degree change in direction. At the beginning of the passage, Mordecai, his fate is all but doomed. The, the pole is set up for him to be impaled, to be an executed. And yet at the end of this passage, it's not Mordecai who's executed, but it's Haman who's executed on the very pole that was set up for Mordecai. A complete reversal of what's going on in the situation and in the story. And what we see about God, what we learn about God, is that God is in the business of divine reversals. When things look dark and bleak and they can't go anywhere else and even hopeless at times, God in His redemptive providence is working behind the scenes to divinely uh, reverse the things that are going on in our lives to bring about His good intentions for those who are called according to His purposes. God is a God when things look bleak and dark and, and even hopeless. God is a God of divine reversals. Mordecai, at the beginning of this passage, everything looked like it was all done for him. There's nothing he could do. And in a moment, things are reversed. In the moment, things are reversed for him. And this is what we've learned throughout this story, but things that we continue to point ourselves back to, which is exactly what the Apostle Paul would write about some thousands of years later in the book of Romans chapter 8, where he says that we know that in all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him and have been called according to His purposes through all things. See, one of the things we learn about God in this story is that God is not powerless to the issues that are before us, to the situations that look dark and bleak and hopeless that are before us. God is not powerless in those situations. God is not one who's sitting down with his hands tied and just can't do anything about it, but God is one of divine reversals. God is one of of power that can overcome even the most dark and bleak situations before us. And as we journey in our life, the longer we live and the longer we apprentice ourselves to Jesus, there will come seasons in our life where things will look dark and things will look bleak and there will be an issue before us, whether it's a marital issue, a financial issue, a relational issue, an emotional issue. There will be an issue that comes before us that seems dark and heavy and overburdened and we won't know what to do and it will be overwhelming to us. Until we remember that God is the one of divine reversals. Until we remember that God is not powerless to our situations that seem so overwhelming to us. That God is not sitting back and with His hands tied and unable to do anything. But God is powerful. And He shows up in ways that are absolutely unmistakable. That while He's not in the pages of the Scriptures, we see His invisible hand behind the scenes orchestrating a divine reversal of things, even when they looked bleak and dark and hopeless at times. So would you be encouraged this morning that our God is a God of divine reversals and He shows up in a way that's unmistakable. Though His name isn't on the pages, It's unmistakable that he's moving to bring about divine reversals in situations that look dark and bleak and overwhelming and even hopeless 
at times. Second thing I want us to learn about God from this part of the story is that His timing is perfect. Rarely our timing, but His timing is perfect. And His ways are perfect. Now we've already stated this before, but when we see that God is missing from the pages, that His name is not here, He's not mentioned in the Scripture. One of the reasons that He's not mentioned in the book of Esther is that it will strengthen our faith to see Him and to see His timing working at always behind the scenes of our life. While He's not on the forefront of the pages, we begin to exercise the muscles of faith in our eyes to be able to see Him, to be moving in the ways. To see His timing is absolutely perfect. To see His appointed activities working in our life for the good of those who are called according to His purposes. But here's the deal. Our spiritual antenna needs to be raised up. We need to be aware of what God is doing, to notice what God is doing. Because God is in, indeed at work all the time around us and in us and through us if we have the ability to see. And the sad thing is that many people and even many followers of Jesus are blinded and distracted by the issues that we face the issue right before us seems daunting and big and dark and, and bleak and hopeless. And the issue before us gets all of our attention. So our attention is diverted directly to the thing in front of us when the activity of God is going on behind the scenes all the time and we're unaware of it. The issues that we face, the darkness that we face, the issues that, we, that seem overwhelming to us, our eyes get diverted to that, that we miss the fact that the activity of God is working behind the scenes to bring about His good intended purposes in our life. Our spiritual antenna, the muscles of faith need to be worked out in us that we would be able to see the unmistakable hand of the Divine One who's orchestrating divine reversals in our life. But if the issue before us, the financial issue, the relational issue, the marital issue, the emotional issue that's before us, is if our attention is so drawn to that, that we're blinded to the activity of God in our life all the time, then we will miss it. We will miss what God is doing. And we are, our lives will, our faith will wane and waver and weaken. One of the reasons that God is not mentioned in the book of Esther is to strengthen our faith in the one who's in the business of divine reversals to change things. Now, did you notice when I was reading and you were following along, did you notice what some might have seen, what some might have called a coincidence? Did you notice the number of coincidences that some may describe as coincidences in the story? We're told that in chapter 4, Esther prays and fasts, and she comes up with this decision to hold a banquet for Xerxes and for Haman, and so she goes. But she just so happens to not say anything that first banquet. And, and Haman has to go out and seize Mordecai, and it's because of that that he, he erects this pole to be, it sets up this pole to be uh, executing Mordecai on. It just so happens that that's the timeline that it has to happen. And that night, it just so happens that King Xerxes can't sleep. He's got insomnia. It just so happens that he wakes up in the middle of the night. So he calls his servants and says, well, can you read me something that's really boring? It just so happens to go to the, to, the, to the bookshelf and he pulls down this chronicles of his reign and just so happens to open to the page of a time when Mordecai saved the king's life. And just so happens that the king perks up a little bit there and he goes, whatever happened to Mordecai? 
And it just so happens that Haman is the one who comes in, that Haman is the one who has to lead out Mordecai and show what's going on. It just so happens that on the next day, when all this had happened, that Esther then begins to tell the king about this evil plan. Do you notice all the lineup of things that look to some as just a coincidence? And all the line of things that seem to be what some would describe as coincidental. Do you see that? But what we see is not coincidence. What we see is not some random acts of coincidences just happening to go on. What we see is God's perfect timing to bring about His intended good purposes and His divine reversal. Frederick Buechner is an author and a theologian. I love what he has said one time. He said that coincidences are God's way of getting our attention. When things look like it can be nothing else but the divine hand of God orchestrating certain things to happen in His perfect timing, coincidences are God's way of getting our attention. Getting our attention. Can I encourage you this morning? Can I just encourage you? Because I know. I know some of your stories because I've walked with you and I've talked with some of you. And I know that for some of you, this past year has been hell on earth. And you've been brought through the ringer this past year. And it seems the one thing after another after another has just hit you. Family issues, relational, financial issues, job-related things. I know it's been a hard year. And I wish I could tell you I wish I could tell you how long it's going to last. I wish I could tell you what God's timing is going to do. I wish I could tell you how it's going to be at the end. I wish I could tell you when the end of this dark tunnel is going to come for you. I wish I could tell you where the light is for you at the end of the tunnel, but I can't. I don't have vision like that. I don't have that kind of understanding of God's timing. But let me give you what I do know. Our God is a God of divine reversals. And while it may seem dark and bleak and difficult and even overbearing at times, and while His timing may not be our timing, it is always perfect. And it is always His desire to bring about good intentions for those called according to His purposes. And so our job, our job in all of this is to not rush ahead. To not rush ahead to what God is doing but to remain aware of God's activity in the backgrounds of our life to bring about His divine reversals, His good timing in our life. Our job is to not rush ahead or to manipulate or to manufacture things to happen on our timeline, but our job is to remain steadfast and trusting in His unending grace and mercy for us. Our job is to trust and to learn to live by faith in the one who's about divine reversals and whose timing is perfect. Third thing I want us to point out or want us to consider in this part of the story here is that salvation belongs to God. Salvation belongs to God. Mordecai, the one in this story who's saved, whose whose life is brought back from the the edge of, of doom, Mordecai does absolutely nothing to save himself in this. At most, in chapter 4, he prays and fasts. At most. But in these chapters, he doesn't do anything to save himself. He's the recipient 
of salvation. He's the recipient of God's mercy and grace. God is the agent of salvation. God is the one who's orchestrating salvation. God is the one who's making things in where that Mordecai is saved. Mordecai is the recipient. He's not the author of his own salvation. He's not the author. He's not the one who brings it about. He's the, simply the recipient of it. So I want us to know something about the nature of God. The salvation belongs to God. God is the agent of our salvation, of our being redeemed, our rescue from the pain of sin and death. Our rescue from that is God's doing, not our doing. Not our doing. At best, we pray and we fast. But the working out of the salvation is God's doing. Again, this is what the Apostle Paul would write about in Ephesians chapter 2, where he said, It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. So we like to think that we are the result of our own hard work, that we have the job that we have because we went to school and we've done a lot of these great things and we put in the time and we've got the raise and we did all these other things. We are the recipients or we're the, the result of our own hard work. We, we think about that all the time. And the problem is when we bring that mentality into our understanding, our spiritual life, into our understanding with God, then sometimes we can think that we are who we are in God's kingdom. We are who we are in God's vision of us because we have checked the right religious boxes or we stayed away from the naughty list enough that we've become who we are because of our own doing because we have done something but what we see in esther what we see all throughout scripture is salvation is not our doing but is the work of god is the grace of god god is the agent of salvation he's the one working to redeem and rescue and bring us back from sure death He's the one to free us from the sin and the patterns that entrench our, entrench our lives. He is the one. Sometimes I hear Christian people talk about when they, when they became a Christian or when they came to faith, they talk about it like this. They say, you know, I found God such and such. When I found God, such and such changed in my life. Perhaps a more accurate way to say that was when God found me, my life changed. When God found me and he reached out to me, when I was still entrenched in the patterns of sin and rebellion and wanting to do things my way, the glorious, merciful God reached out to me and he touched me. And that made all the difference. Not that I found him. It's that he found me. And what we need to do is learn to trust in the one who's working behind the scenes to bring about good in the lives of those called according to his purposes to rescue and to redeem and to, uh, and to author salvation for us. Our job is to learn to rest and trust in God and what he is doing, to not rush ahead, but to learn to trust that salvation belongs to him. If I could point you to Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. The prophet Isaiah writes this. He says, this is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. In other words, the people of Israel wanted to earn their own stuff. They wanted to manufacture their own ability. And the prophet Isaiah said, in repentance and rest is your salvation. To learn to trust in the one who's the author of our salvation. But you don't want that. 
You want to earn it on your own. You want to do things on your own. You want to manufacture it. You want to rush ahead. But in rest and repentance and trusting in the sovereignness of God, that is where our salvation lies. The one who's about divine reversals. And quietness and trust is our strength. We don't know when it's going to happen. We don't know how it's going to happen. But when we mature in our faith, when we grow as apprentices to Jesus, we're learning to live by faith. We're learning to live by faith, trusting in the goodness of God to restore that which is all broken. That which is all broken, including us. Including us. So what do you do with that? What do we do with that? How do we live according to that way? To those understanding of God. How do we live according to that? Well, this, this morning I just have one assignment for you. If you haven't read the book of Esther, you need to read it. I'm not going to give that one to you. That's a gimme, right? I get one assignment for you this week. And that is to meditate on Isaiah chapter 30, verses 15 to 18. The part that I just read and a little bit more. And when I, by, when I say meditate, I don't mean some goofy thing where you just sit in a room and all that stuff. I don't want to say that. What I'm saying is take the passage, Isaiah chapter 30, verses 15 to 18, and read over it two to three times this week. Just quiet yourself, learn to rest in that, and see what the, the Holy Spirit may speak to you using that passage, Isaiah 30, verses 15 to 18. And in the midst of the fears or the things that may be looming before you, things that are surrounding you, just simply learn to take a deep breath. Trust in the quietness and the rest of our God, who's the God of divine reversals, whose timing is perfect, and who salvation belongs to. Learn to trust. As I was preparing and getting ready for this morning, I began to think about some of you. And begin to think about those who are listening online and those who are gathered here in person. And it came to my mind that there may be some of you here or some who's listening and watching that you have not yet given your life over to the lordship and the kingship of Jesus. You've not yet yielded your life. You've not yet given your life to Christ. You're beginning to realize that your life is not working on its own. It's not working the way it's supposed to. The patterns of sin are still entrenched in your life that, that you can't get out of it on your own. And you desperately need to know that salvation belongs to God and that He has reached out in His eternal mercy and grace to rescue us. You need to know that God is a God who loves and is in the business of divine reversals for those who will humbly repent and rest in Him. Rest in Him. And if that's you, if you haven't yet turned your life over to the leadership of Jesus, if you haven't yet confessed your need for Him as a Savior, then I just encourage you, whether you're here in person or you're online, to come up and ask me, talk with me. Let's walk together as we walk towards Jesus. Click on the button online that says, I need prayer, and talk with somebody, even right now, that we can begin to walk with you. I'd love nothing more than to walk with you as you apprentice your life after Jesus. As you see this one who's about divine reversals. Well, as we've done in the last couple of weeks, we have uh, ended the service with a moment of reflection and quiet confession. And this morning we're going to do the same. 
But this morning, in the reflection and in the confession, I want to ask you to, to reflect on a time when you have not been patient with God. There's been an issue that has caught all of your attention and you've rushed ahead. You haven't paid attention. You haven't trusted in God. You haven't rested in God. You've rushed ahead. You, you've, you've tried to do it on your own. A time when you've even began to doubt the goodness of God. With all the stuff and all the heaviness that is surrounding you, you've begun to even doubt the goodness of God in your life. You've been so distracted by the things before you that your spiritual antenna is, is blocked. This morning, I'm just going to invite you just a few moments of silence to reflect in that. And then a moment of confession where you just simply, in your own heart, just silently confess, God, I have not trusted you. I've even begun to doubt you. Doubt your goodness. Doubt your mercy. Doubt that your timing had ever come through. Begun to doubt. And just in that moment of silent confession that you just do some business with God, ways in which you haven't been attentive to him. Ask him for strength, for patience, for faith through whatever that you are having to dredge through. And that maybe his grace would come in that we would rise up as men and women of faith, learning to trust in his goodness and sing of his goodness and testify to his goodness. Because our God is a God of divine reversals. Our God is a God whose timing is perfect. Our God is a God who desires to seek and save those who are lost and overburdened and overcrowded to reach in and give new life and to breathe it into you. Our job is to receive, to rest in repentance, to receive not rush ahead, to not manipulate it and manufacture it on your own, but to learn to receive from Him alone. So I'd invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment of silence before we respond. A moment of silence and then even a moment of confession before we respond.